A faculty member at Yale Law School named Dr. Brandy Lee, a psychiatrist, is suing Yale for dismissing her. The reason Yale dismissed her is because she was going around diagnosing people without having met them. She diagnosed Donald Trump as being psychotic, and she diagnosed me as having caught Donald Trump's psychosis because I used the same word that he used six months earlier, the word perfect. So we'll talk today about whether Yale is correct, whether she has been canceled, whether her First Amendment rights have been violated, whether she violated the rules of the profession, the so-called Goldwater Rule, which precludes psychiatrists from diagnosing people without ever having examined them. We'll explore this and related issues on today's Dirt Show. Until I turned uh, 75 seven years ago, I had never been involved personally in a lawsuit. I'd never sued anybody. I never was sued. In the last seven years, my life seems to be lawsuits. As probably some of you know, I am suing CNN. I am suing Netflix. I am being sued by a woman I never met who claimed to have sex with me. I'm suing her back. I'm being sued by her lawyer, David Boys. I'm suing him back. And now the other day I learned that a, a woman I, I never met, a psychiatrist named Dr. Brandy Lee, who used to be a volunteer faculty member at Yale, is suing Yale University for firing her based on what she claims were letters I wrote to Yale University. So I'm at the center of yet another lawsuit and a suit in which she alleges that she's being fired in violation of her First Amendment rights. So let's tell the story. I don't know this woman, Dr. Brandy Lee. Uh, I taught myself law and psychiatry for 25 years. I actually even taught it at Yale Law School uh, with another professor, Jay Katz. Uh, in the early years of my teaching, I wrote a book called Psychoanalysis, Psychiatry, and the Law, and I am an expert in law and psychiatry. Um, I was involved in the decision by the American Psychiatric Association to create uh, what was called the Goldwater Rule. And I taught the Goldwater Rule for years. Now, what's the Goldwater Rule? Let me explain. That will serve as a predicate to this very interesting story. Barry Goldwater ran for president of the United States um, against uh, Lyndon Johnson. He was conservative. Lyndon Johnson was liberal. A lot of liberal psychiatrists didn't like Barry Goldwater. And a magazine called Fact Magazine sent letters to thousands of psychiatrists asking them to diagnose Barry Goldwater. And believe it or not, more than a thousand of them did it. They never met Barry Goldwater. They didn't know anything about him except what they'd seen on television. And they diagnosed him as mentally ill. Um, now, we all know what happened. Barry Goldwater lost the presidency, became one of the most distinguished senators in the 20th uh, century, and manifested no, no symptoms or indicia of mental illness. In fact, by today's standard, he'd be a Mitt Romney. I mean, he'd be a centrist, a Republican, independent. Uh, he's gone down in history as one of the most sane and sober and, and moderate 
individuals. Yes, he famously said uh, that extremism in the name of liberty is, is not a bad thing. I don't have the exact quote. But uh, he was regarded as somebody to the right of the conventional Republican Party back in the early 60s, but no indication of mental illness or disturbance. But yet these psychiatrists who hated him because of his politics were willing to diagnose him. So the American Psychiatric Association said, no, 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 no. You can't do that. If you're a psychiatrist, if you're a doctor, if you go on television or in the media or sign petitions, as a doctor, as a psychiatrist, using your education, using your credentials, you can't go around diagnosing people without having examined them. And that's been the rule now for years and years and years. Along comes Dr. Brandy Lee. She decides she doesn't have to follow the uh, Goldwater Rule or any ethical rules of the American Psychiatric Association. She doesn't belong to the American Psychiatric Association because she doesn't agree with them. And so she goes around diagnosing people. She holds a conference in which others come and diagnose Donald Trump. They diagnose him in every possible way. <laughs> and then she crosses the line. Without having met me, she diagnosed me. Here's what she said. She said, Alan Dershowitz is so close to Donald Trump. I didn't even vote for him. But I'm so close to Donald Trump that I caught his psychosis, that I started to develop and manifest symptoms of his psychosis. And she came up with a psychiatric diagnostic label for this kind of shared psychosis. And I caught it from him. And what's the evidence? Well, <laughs> another extremist uh, professor who constantly conflates uh, ethics with uh, his own politics, named Richard Painter, had done a tweet saying, did anybody notice Alan Dershowitz used the word perfect and Donald Trump used the word perfect? Donald Trump used the word perfect in connection with his call to the uh, president uh, or the prime minister, or the president, I guess, of, of the Ukraine. He used the word perfect. And Alan Dershowitz used the word perfect. That's more than a coincidence. And Brandy Lee picks it up and says, yeah, that's, that's more than a coincidence. If Alan Dershowitz used the word perfect after Donald Trump used the word perfect, he must have caught it from Donald Trump. He must have used the word perfect as part of his psychosis developed out of his connections to Donald Trump. There are only two problems with that. Number one, I used the word perfect months before Donald Trump ever did. So what, did he catch his psychosis from me? That's the implication. I didn't use it after he used it. I used it before he used it. And I used it in a completely different context. He used the word perfect to suggest that what he did was excellent or right. His call was perfect. I use the word perfect like in perfect attendance. I was talking about my relationship with, with my wife. I was denying that I had sex with a woman I'd never met. And I was saying that from the day I met Jeffrey Epstein until that very day, I had been completely and totally faithful to my wife. My sex life with my wife was, in that respect, perfect. Perfect attendance. I never deviated. So I use the word perfect completely differently from the way Donald Trump used it. And I used it months before. He used it. So 
she diagnoses me as having a, a contagious psychosis. I guess I can pass it on to other people as well. Friends and family, beware. Maybe that's why people on Martha's Vineyard didn't want to associate with me, because I'm contagious. I have the Donald Trump psychosis, according to Dr. Brandy Lee. Well, what she said was so irresponsible, so unprofessional, so unacademic that I decided as a Yale alumnus and as somebody who taught at Yale Law School Law and Psychiatry that I had an obligation to tell the people at Yale what she was doing because it wasn't really prominently known at the time. So I wrote a letter to the various people at Yale uh, simply outlining what she had done, describing what she had done. I wrote a column about it, uh, which I certainly have the right to do. My First Amendment rights to write a column defending myself from an accusation of psychosis. Um, not that it's an accusation. Psychotic people are sick. Uh, they're not to be blamed or uh, uh, vilified, but I'm not psychotic. And I think to say I am without having met me is... Uh, unprofessional, in violation of the rules of the American Psychiatric Association, in violation of rules of common sense and, and basic decency. So I wrote to Yale asking them to investigate. I didn't say you should fire her. I didn't say you should warn her. I didn't say you should condemn her. Look into it. She's a, somebody who uses Yale. Uh, she is a volunteer faculty member at Yale using the imprimatur of Yale. Look into it. I also said that I was going to write to the American Psychiatric Association and ask them to look into the possibility of disciplining her for violating the Goldwater rule and the rules of the profession, making psychiatrists look like a bunch of fools for diagnosing people who they had never met. I never got a response from the letter from Yale. As far as I knew, it, it, the matter was in Yale's hands. <laughs> but they eventually looked into it. Uh, they wrote to her, they called her in, I guess, and uh, she refused to stop doing what she was doing, diagnosing people uh, without having seen them in violation of all the rules of uh, the profession and academia. And so they, they fired her or didn't renew her contract. She didn't have tenure, so they didn't have to fire her. They just didn't renew her contract. But it's the, it's the same as, as firing, essentially. And so now she filed a lawsuit Blaming me for getting her fired. Uh, Yale psychiatry professor sues the university for firing her after she tweeted that Trump supporters suffered from shared psychosis and Alan Dershowitz had taken on Trump symptoms by contagion. That's the headline. Well, first, she wasn't a, a Yale professor. She was a volunteer uh, faculty member. And uh, other newspaper accounts basically credited me for doing it, saying it was my letter. I don't know whether it was my letter. I don't think I'm as powerful as that. Yale looked into it. I simply laid out the facts for them. I told them something they either knew or didn't know. They looked into it, and they made their own uh, decision. But now I'm at the center of another lawsuit. I'm sure I'm going to be deposed. I have challenged her to debate this issue. So this is not a First Amendment problem. Let her express her views about what a psychiatrist should do. Um, I have challenged her to debate. I challenged her back when I wrote the letter, and I've challenged her now again. Let's have a Zoom debate. Come on my show. 
describe why you think I'm psychotic. Let the audience judge whether I'm uh, psychotic, whether I'm suffering from symptoms of Trump contagion psychosis. I wonder, maybe I've been cured by the election of Joe Biden. That's possible. That might be a cure for my psychosis, having seen Donald Trump no longer as president. Um, of course, I haven't seen Donald Trump or, or, or spoken to him in, a, in, in, in quite a period of time. I certainly haven't seen him uh, for m m more than a year. So it'd be hard to see how I could have a contagion. But uh, who knows? Uh, maybe there's a vaccine that will be developed to deal with uh, this contagious disease of uh, Trump psychosis. In any event, it's not funny. It's not funny. When you have psychiatrists, doctors, medical doctors abusing their position, abusing the trust people place in them, and using their credentials as doctors and psychiatrists to make their political points, to argue against Donald Trump, she's perfectly free to say Donald Trump is wrong and is bad and is dangerous and all of that, but she's not free to say Donald Trump is psychotic. She's bad to say... Uh, she's free to say, I'm a bad person for having defended um, uh, Donald Trump in front of the United States Senate. I was never a supporter of President Trump. I was never a voter for President Trump. But she's free to say whatever she wants politically about me. But to call me psychotic, to say I have caught his psychosis is so unprofessional, so bizarre that um, uh, I don't think she has much of a chance of prevailing on the lawsuit. Now, I care about cancel culture and I care about the First Amendment. Um, I don't know whether I would myself support her being fired uh, or canceled. Um, let the public judge. Uh, let the public judge her credibility. She was also a CNN commentator. She appeared on CNN with her absurd statements about Donald Trump. Well, I guess CNN and 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 Brandy Lee, in some respects, they deserve each other. Um, a perfect choice for CNN to have Brandy Lee on as their expert psychiatrist, telling everybody what to think about Donald Trump. Not enough to attack his positions on the Muslim ban. Not enough to attack his positions on immigration, which I have done. Not enough to defend him, perhaps, on his views on the Middle East. No, no, no. You gotta diagnose him. No debate. Diagnose. Diagnosis is a conversation ender. If a person is psychotic, then you don't have to listen to him. If Alan Dershowitz has caught Donald Trump's psychosis by using a word six months earlier than Donald Trump used, then why do you have to listen to Alan Dershowitz, turn off his podcast, send him to a psychiatric hospital, let him be cured of his constitutional positions. You know, many years ago, I defended Soviet dissidents and wrote about them who had been put in mental hospitals because they wanted to be free and they were diagnosed as mentally ill for opposing communism. In China, during the Cultural Revolution, a similar diagnoses occurred. Uh, almost all tyrannical regimes use psychiatric diagnoses to try to trivialize the views of their political opponents. And that's what Brandy Lee uh, is doing. She's misusing 
psychiatry and the way that a thousand psychiatrists misuse psychiatry against Barry Goldwater. Look, I didn't vote for Barry Goldwater. I didn't want to see him be president, not because I thought he was mentally ill, because I didn't like his positions. I didn't like his views. That's the right of every American. But the idea of changing politics into diagnosis and political differences into psychiatric categories is just not in the interests of free speech, not in the interests of American politics, not in the interests of truth, not in the interests of academic freedom. Look, she has the freedom to say whatever she wants, and we have the freedom to call her on it. That's academic freedom, the marketplace of ideas. The marketplace of ideas is open to Brandy Lee. Let her debate me. Let her write op-eds. She wrote op-eds for the New York Times. Again, not surprising. Op-eds for the New York Times, comments on CNN. And then she goes around diagnosing people based on not even having seen them or examined them not knowing whether they're taking medication, not knowing whether their family has a history of mental illness, not knowing anything that might be relevant, not administering any psychological tests, not even talking to them, not even seeing their affect, not even seeing whether they're perfectly reasonable people. No, 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 she knows. She's a psychiatrist. She can diagnose Trump is psychotic. Dershowitz caught his psychosis. The proof is Dershowitz used a word perfect after Trump used the word perfect. The fact that he used it six months earlier, maybe there's a time machine going on here. I don't know. Maybe something's going on that made Dershowitz know that six months later, Donald Trump would use the word perfect in a completely different context. Ah, that's the proof. Richard Painter, professor of law. He caught him. He got him. He used the word perfect, the same word. Must be psychotic. So uh, let's hear your views about uh, psychiatry, about the misuses of psychiatry, about the Goldwater rule, about uh, I, I, the one thing I don't want to hear are your views about whether you think Donald Trump is psychotic or whether I'm psychotic. I mean, you, if you're not a psychiatrist, you can express whatever views you want when you call me on the Dirt Show. But if you're a psychiatrist um, or a doctor, I don't want to facilitate malpractice and unprofessionalism on the Dirt Show. So I don't welcome uh, diagnoses by professionals, but I welcome any opinions, any expression of views. And again, I offer Brandy Lee an opportunity to debate me on whether it is ever proper for a psychiatrist, for a medical doctor, to offer a diagnosis based on political considerations rather than medical examination, rather than the usual way in which doctors and psychiatrists go about diagnosing people. So that's my view on, on Dr. Brandy Lee. I am waiting to hear your views on that and other subjects and on the First Amendment and on cancel culture, whether she is the victim of cancel culture, whether or not a person who is told that he's psychotic has the right to fight back and write to the university. Who's right here? Who's wrong here? Where is the truth? Let's hear your views about this interesting, fascinating issue on The Dirt Show.
Now for my favorite part of the Dirt Show, the wits, the comments and calls from my audience members. Let's go to the first call. Hello, Consigliere. This is Andrew calling from Connecticut. Uh, the reason I'm calling now is there's a story about New York City Council eliminating uh, protections for civil uh, suits against police officers. So the, forget about defunding the police. This effectively, as far as I can tell, completely decimates the New York City Police Department. Like how these police officers are not set up to defend themselves against uh, nonstop uh, civil suits. Uh, it just makes it impossible to do the job. And de facto, does that mean New York City is done? Anyway, I'd love to hear your comments on this and what it really means and how anyone could possibly do that job uh, considering the risks involved now. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Very important point. Uh, look, the police are our first line of defense against uh, criminals, thugs, uh, murderers, rapists, robbers. Uh, we have to support the police. Look, I've had my conflicts with police over the years in the courtroom. I've cross-examined police officers. I've argued on appeal against uh, police uh, interrogations. I've won lots of cases uh, involving the police, but I respect the police in general. One of my former students is a high-ranking person in the New York City Police uh, Department. I commend my students who want to go into uh, police work, FBI work, Secret Service work. There's nothing more important than protecting us uh, from people who want to do us harm. Uh, and I do think we have to increase funding for the police. And I think we have to make sure that the police are protected uh, when they're sued and that they are afforded legal counsel, either through the police unions or through the city. Um, after all, the city is responsible for the actions of their police under the principle of respondeat superior. That is, the boss is responsible for the actions of people they hire. So um, I'm completely in favor of the city making sure that police officers, many of whom get very low salaries and have to support families, are not in any way bankrupted by uh, complaints. If there are complaints, let them be given to the appropriate authorities or ultimately to the courts. But let's make sure that all sides are adequately defended. Hello, Professor Dershowitz. This is Bob from New York. Hey, uh, Professor, uh, this is a question uh, come up several times in my head and really came to the surface on your discussion on the Second Amendment. I'd like your thoughts and comments on the thought that the Bill of Rights or the first 10 amendments are really redundant and that uh, I know a lot of the framers really didn't want them in there. And I've heard people make the case that you could remove the first 10 amendments and the Constitution as it's read and can be interpreted would still protect those rights based on the mm -hmm. the uh, the way the the Constitution was written. That if it said you could do it, that's it. Otherwise, um, it's not prohibited. So I may have that wrong, but I really would like your your thoughts on the idea. Is are the Bill of Rights redundant? And even if we remove the Second Amendment, what what would how would the Constitution protect the right to bear arms on its own? Love to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks. 
It's a great question. And the point you make was made by Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers. He thought that a Bill of Rights not only was redundant, but dangerous because it implied that the federal government had rights that it didn't have. If the Constitution didn't give it the power, it doesn't have the power. Here's the problem. The problem is what about the states? So um, the Constitution doesn't really restrict the states very much. It does in a half a dozen ways. They must have a Republican form of government, obviously Republican with a small r, meaning essentially what we've now defined as um, a system with a president and a governor. Uh, interesting question, whether a state could move toward a parliamentary system. I don't know the answer to that. Nobody's ever tried it. So the states uh, would be free to restrict free speech. And in fact, Thomas Jefferson argued after he opposed the Alien and Sedition Laws, which restricted the free speech of dissenters from the federal government, he argued, no, the federal government has no power to restrict free speech, but the states do. And so the Bill of Rights, uh, following um, the 14th Amendment and then during a judicial revolution in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, uh, incorporated the Bill of Rights and applied them to the states. So today the Bill of Rights applies to the states, and it's not redundant there because the Constitution doesn't deal with what states can do. As I said, with few exceptions, they can't pass Bell of Attainders, they can't pass ex post facto laws, and they don't have other powers, but they could engage in illegal searches and seizures, they could um, violate the right to trial by jury, they could uh, impose double jeopardy, they could do all of those things. Uh, absent the Bill of Rights. Now, the Bill of Rights hasn't been a perfect protection against the states imposing double jeopardy, for example. That part of the Bill of Rights hasn't been incorporated against the states yet. I suspect it will be over time. But it's a, it's a terrific jurisprudential question. Did we need a Bill of Rights? Hamilton said no. Other framers said yes. Ultimately, we got the Bill of Rights and they became applicable to the states as well, which changed the nature of the Bill of Rights. Um, the Second Amendment, it would be up to the states to decide whether to regulate guns if we didn't have a Bill of Rights. The federal government maybe wouldn't have that authority under the Constitution, but the states would. Because remember that all the power is not relegated specifically in the Constitution to the federal government are reserved to the states and the people. So the Articles of Confederacy gave even more power to the states, but even the Constitution gave very considerable power to the states. And it was only the Bill of Rights and the Judicial Revolution based on the Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment, which started to impose restrictions on the states. It's a great, great question. And you could have a whole seminar on that. And Greg, thank you so much for your intelligent thoughts on this issue. I think we have a unique situation in Georgia that I would like your opinion on. One of the county commissions in the 1990s that was duly elected passed a regulation in the county requiring that all heads of households must own a firearm so that they could be available to serve a county militia in case of a crisis. Uh, this is a standing regulation as far as I'm aware. Some citizens appealed to the state legislature to override the county, and the legislature, the legislature excuse me, declined to do so. Uh, I think under the principle that 
this was in the context of what was constitutionally acceptable and that people were free to move to other counties if they didn't want to comply. So based on your arguments over the last few days, my expectation would be that you would be fully in favor of a duly elected body uh, mandating gun ownership. But I would like to hear your opinion on that. Uh, thank you. Well, you're partly right and partly wrong. Um, I think um, I would favor the fact that it is constitutional, that a state uh, or a county would have the right, probably, to compel the head of a household, whether that's sexist and would satisfy other parts of the Constitution, but head of a household to keep and, and, and bear arms, subject, of course, I would think, to conscientious objection. There might be some people who are conscientiously opposed to it on religious grounds. Don't know how that would fare. So I would say it's probably constitutional. I would be adamantly opposed to it as a matter of policy. I don't think you compel people to own guns. I don't want to have a gun. Uh, I don't want a gun in my home. I don't want my children to be able to have access to a gun. I don't want somebody who comes into the house in the middle of the night uh, to hold me up to find my gun. Uh, no, I mean, as a matter of policy, I'd be opposed to it. But as a matter of constitutionality, I can't find a basis for being opposed to it unless you could argue that compelling people to do something like that um, violates uh, their uh, kind of uh, individual rights of conscience. It would be a close case, but I think it probably would be upheld as constitutional, but I would vote against it as a matter of policy. But it's a very good question. Professor Dershowitz, this is Arnold from New York. I'm an associate professor of medicine at Cornell and a great admirer and consistent listener to your, of your podcast and program. Just got finished finished listening to the podcast on the Second Amendment, and naturally there was a substantial amount of speculation as to what the framers of the Constitution had in mind with the Second Amendment. And uh, we can speculate on a lot of things, but one thing seems self-evident, that they did not intend for sociopathic murderers to have access to weapons and commit the kind of crimes that we've been witnessing lately. And in this vein, I'm curious to know what criteria a person has to fulfill to obtain a gun. We all know that in the medical profession, in the law profession, in the dental profession, in the veterinary profession, even in people who cut hair and groom dogs, there are criteria you have to fulfill. There are uh, psychological evaluations that you have to fulfill. There are licenses that you have to uh, obtain, continuing education that you have to do. There are uh, reassessment of your ability to perform your duties. Anytime human life and even quality of human life is at stake. So it would seem to me unconscionable that we're not regulating without prohibiting people from having weapons. I'd love to uh, hear your views on this. It's been something that I've been thinking about for a lot of time. And just now listening to your podcast, I couldn't resist the urge to ask you this question. I hope you'll address it. Uh, wishing everybody healthy and happy holidays. Happy holidays to everybody, of course. Uh, meaningful Easter, meaningful Passover, meaningful holidays for, for everybody. Uh, it's a very, very good question. As a matter of policy, I agree. Um, I think that um, a person who wants to have a gun should have a license to have the gun. 
and should have to pass psychological tests and maybe re-education. Maybe you should have to show that they have a place to keep the gun that will keep it safe from children. We know how often kids get a hold of guns and, and use them uh, and use them lethally against themselves, against their siblings, against others. So I think reasonable restrictions on gun ownership are perfectly consistent with policy. Here's the problem. The Second Amendment. Um, and if you interpret the Second Amendment only by looking at the second clause, the right to bear arms, um, it makes it harder because you can't license people to speak under the First Amendment. Anybody can get up in Times Square, um, presumably, and just speak. Now, you may have to get a license to have an area that's separate and designated for your speaking. But generally, we don't have First Amendment licenses. We generally don't have speech licenses. You don't have to qualify to be a speaker. You can be a complete crackpot, nut, uh, Hyde Park. Um, uh, look, Brandy Lee has the right to express her bizarre views. Richard Painter has the right to express his uh, views. Um, anybody has the right to express their views, and we have the right to condemn them. That's the First Amendment, and we don't need a license for that. Now, you make an important point. When we're dealing with life, when we're dealing with dangers to life, which guns do pose, whether you're on the one side or the other, of the debate, you know that life is at stake. Some of you think it protects life. Some of you think it endangers life. I think it does a little bit of both uh, in, so, in some cases. The rules should be different, uh, and I agree with you, but the First Amendment and the Second Amendment have equal status under our Constitution. And so we're going to continue to have this debate and this controversy over whether you can require gun owners to have licenses, whether you can require waiting periods, whether you can require psychological evaluations, retesting. Um, you know, I get retested periodically for a driver's uh, license, and I should be retested. At 82 years old, they shouldn't just allow me to get in a car and drive anywhere I want. I think I'm a pretty good driver, but I have no problem to being retested, relicensed, and reevaluated. And if I had a gun license at 82 years old, I would think it would be appropriate to check my aim, check my eyes, make sure that I'm still an appropriate gun owner and car driver. So these are issues that I've been really honored to debate with very intelligent people. I've loved your input. Uh, you've made me think hard about some issues that instinctively I have a view on. Again, growing up in Brooklyn uh, in the 1940s and 50s, we did not grow up with a gun culture. Uh, I understand people who did grow up with a gun culture where their gun is a very important part of their identity, and I don't want to diminish that at all. And so I think we need a compromise, again, where the ordinary American, the law-abiding American, gets to have his or her guns and gets to decide how to use them as long as they're used safely, while at the same time we prevent the kind of people that engaged in the killings in Atlanta and the killings in Boulder uh, not to have guns. It won't be easy because Predicting violence is extremely difficult. I know I've written a book about it and taught about it for many, many years. But we have to try our best. Uh, look, the goal is uh, ideally under the Second Amendment to allow law-abiding people who will not cause harm and may prevent crimes from having guns while at the same time denying them to people who we all agree should not have guns. 
difficult challenge, but a challenge that I think we're up to as a country. So thank you again for your great, great questions. This has been a real seminar on the Second Amendment. Now we're going to have calls, hopefully, on the Brandy Lee case and psychiatry and other issues as well. And so, again, let me repeat, uh, may you all have a meaningful Easter, a meaningful Passover. Um, I enjoyed participating last night, along with many others, in the White House uh, Passover uh, Seder, uh, where uh, both the President of the United States and the Vice President wished uh, everybody a Chag Sameach, uh, a happy holiday, and I'm sure there will be Easter commemorations as well. You know, we live in a country where, as George Washington said, without regard to our religion, we're all equal citizens. We don't uh, exist by the toleration of others. We can each sit under our fig tree and live our lives and live our lives consistent with our traditions, with our religious values. And so this is a season of expressing religious values and may it become a way of uniting us and bringing us together rather than dividing us. So keep sending in questions, keep listening, keep subscribing to The Der Show. An important part of The Der Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.